This is our second episode of three with construction consultant and author Sean Van Dyke. Last episode, we hit on attracting talent. This time, Sean makes the case why you always need to get paid for pre-construction work and exactly how to go about doing it. Be sure to check out our previous episode with Sean. There's a good chance you already know who he is, but if you don't, check him out online, seanvandyke.com, social media, at seanvandyke. You can also get his book, Profit First for Contractors on Amazon. Enjoy the episode. All right, so this is going to be section two or episode two, getting paid for pre-con, which I'm excited to, there's a weak spot actually of our business as well. To kick this off, we're talking about how and why to get paid for your pre-construction services. You know, most, all the experts say that you should get paid for pre-con. I've heard it many times. So it's not a necessarily a new concept, but to you, Sean, What's your reason for pushing this to your clients? Mainly because they're professionals and they need to be treated as professionals and they need to view themselves as professionals and professionals get paid for professional work. I mean, that's really the nuts and bolts of it. Estimating work, giving out estimates is different. Meaning if you call me up and you've got a project and you can describe the project to me, and I'm qualified to do that work, I should be able to tell you roughly how much that should cost. Now, most people that call up, especially building a home, they don't have all of the details yet. Even if they've got an architect on board and the plans are being drawn up, I've never found a set of architecturally drawn plans that are 100% complete, meaning they had all of the decisions on there. And so when people call you up and say, hey, we want you to do some work for us, let's say, okay, well, what's the project? What's the scope? What do you need us to price it on? And if you give me some preliminary information up front, we can talk about what your budget should be for this because there's no sense in me going through the bidding process or a quoting process or preparing proposal if you're not prepared to spend the money that I, as a professional, think that it's going to take to build your project. This, I mean, it's that plain and simple. I always say, like, even uh, mechanics have this figured out. So, for example, if you say, okay, I don't know what's wrong with my car. I'm going to take the car into the shop and I'm going to take the mechanic and say, I don't know what's wrong with it. He's going to say, no problem. Leave it here with us. We'll take a look at it. He calls you back the next day and says, well, we found out the problem. Um, you got a leak in the radiator. Your thermostat's busted. We also noticed because we're professionals, you need some new belts. And we did a thorough check of the car. We're going to change your oil and you need new brake pads. And all that's going to be 1200 bucks. And you say, oh, gosh. Well, I know some guys with some tools. I can watch some videos on YouTube and I think I can do it myself. The mechanic's going to say, no problem. Come get your car. And when you go get your car, before he hands you the keys, he's going to hand you an invoice for about $95 for the diagnostic. And every single time you're going to pay that because he did a performed a service for you. So it happens all the time in every industry, except for some reason, contractors think that they have to do all of this work for free. And they don't. And our HVAC techs and our electricians, our plumbers, they all have this figured out too. Meaning somebody calls up and says, hey, the, the toilet's leaking. I mean, at least my plumbers did anyway. And I'm sure your plumbers do too. Yeah, no problem. 125 bucks just to show up. Once we get there, we'll assess the problem and then we'll determine 
what it is from there. But for some reason, us remodelers and general contractors, we go running around all over town solving everybody's problem, giving them professional services for free, and there's no requirement that they have to buy those services from us. So from a homeowner's perspective, yeah, I'm going to take that all day long, or they don't even know what they're asking because everyone says, oh, contractors are supposed to give you free estimates. And that's what I say you should. If you're a contractor, you should give free estimates. But an estimate is just a guess based on your experience. It's not 20 hours in calculating takeoffs and and coming up with a bid. No, that's work. That's a professional service, and you should pay for that. That's my whole stance on it. Yeah, and that's mine as well. And I want to I want to just reinforce what you said to create this line of delineation. So there are two things that are going on here. One is you take a call from a potential client, and they're asking you questions, and you can provide them ballpark estimates, as we like to call them. So there's nothing wrong with spending an hour or two of your time on on a call or two or whatever, offering that kind of information to see if it's a mutual fit to move forward. But probably pretty close after that point, that's when you're really about to start engaging in professional services, site visits, meetings with the architects, uh, more meetings with the homeowners. You're going to start engaging your team in official bidding and purchasing type activities. All of that is really what should be encapsulated within a pre-construction agreement. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, we also have to delineate like the, the difference between what's good marketing versus what is professional services. So for a custom builder, part of my marketing expenses that I need to work into how I price my work is probably meeting with homeowners on their job sites, meeting with architects, and talking with the homeowners to determine, do I want to enter into a relationship with this person or not? And all of that's going to take some time, and it's probably going to cost you some money too. What I'm talking about is you're going to take clients and architects and designers out to lunches and out to dinner, and you're going to spend some time with them, and you're going to prepare some marketing material. All of that is just marketing. If an architect hands me a set of plans and says, hey, give me give me a number, I'm like, why, why would I do that? What's the criteria that these people are going to base their decision on? Can I meet with them? Because I think that I'm the best builder in town. I think if they've got an opportunity uh, to meet with me, then I'd like to explain why our pre-construction uh, services are going to guarantee them the best results and give them an opportunity to say, this is why you need to pay for it. And other builders that don't charge you for this, well, they're either going to give it away for free, which means they're eventually going to go out of business or they got to start the next job because they're losing thousands and thousands of dollars because they never charged you for it. And you're not going to get the service that you want. So you got to make that delineation between, oh, Sean, you wouldn't even go out to a job site. Most of the time, no, probably not. Why would I waste my time if I haven't even determined or been able to determine whether this person has the right budget, where they are in the process? There's a lot of preliminary information that I want to make sure. Do I even want to enter into a pre-con with this person? If we can get that out of the way, then I want an opportunity. I'll interview against 10 different contractors. I just don't need to bid against 10 different contractors. What's the point? Yeah. Because somebody will always be lower than me. Yeah. And that feeds into my next question. I know a lot of people are going to be asking, how do you sell the idea of someone paying you thousands of dollars while they're still interviewing, most likely, or quite possibly, other builders, and they're not even yet sure that they're going to be using you? 
yeah, I, I would say you don't. Don't pay me thousands of dollars. Just interview me. I'll be. That's what I'm saying is I'm not going to offer the pre-construction services until you've made a decision that you want to go with us or you're going to hire me just for the pre-construction services, meaning let me help you and the architect develop the budget, all of the material specs and all of that kind of stuff and put it together so that you when you do, if whatever reason you want to go out to bid and bid it to, you know, three contractors, five contractors, 10 contractors, whatever it is, at least go out there with something that is professionally prepared from a contractor's point of view. Because, I mean, no offense to architects out there, they're excellent at what they do, which is design. But every builder knows that architects are not so good at determining the cost of construction. So when the bids go out and the architect, if they had a conversation with the owner about designing a $2 million project and five bids come back, one of them is 1.8 and the other four are over 2 million. Well, they look at the, the guys that are high, the four that are high and say, no, nope, they're just ripping us off. It's the 1.8 guy that uh, that's going to get the work because he's closest to what the architect says. But that guy left out so much stuff. And that's what I'm saying. If a number is important to you, then uh, bid it out to 15 contractors because you'll eventually get the number that you want. Now, you're not going to get the project that you want. Um, but that's why I say it's so important to say, like you said, why would somebody pay me a th thousands of dollars while they haven't made a decision? They shouldn't. That's why I want to help them make a decision very early on. Here's what our company does. Here's the services that we provide. Here are the problems that you're going to encounter if you bid this out. Now, I might have people in my company, if we're really going after the job, we might spend a few hours looking over the plans, talking with the client. But all of that is geared to getting them to sign the pre-construction agreement. It's not going to be preparing numbers and doing estimates and takeoffs and all that kind of stuff. So I would encourage homeowners not to pay any contractor anything. Just interview them. Just let them put their best foot forward and be prepared to answer the question when a contractor asks, what's the most important criteria? And if it's price, then you walk away because someone's always going to be cheaper. But if you can get past that price thing, people will say price, but it never is price. We all know that construction costs go up once the project starts. But that's a problem that I want to identify. And that's what the pre-construction services can help eliminate is to say, hey, we don't want your cost to go up, but we don't have all the information yet. Every other contractor is going to just give you numbers. They're going to get you locked into a construction contract and then the change orders will come. And if they don't believe that, then you just turn to the architect and say, oh, have you ever produced a set of drawings or a construction project that has never had any change orders? And no architect can say yes to that unless they've gone through a pre-construction process where they've determined construction costs and gone through everything. So um, that, that's how I say that is like, no, don't start paying me anything, but start interviewing me and interview other people and determine the criteria that you want uh, that you want to establish to make the hiring decision. Then from there, we can go into pre-con. And then when we go through pre-con, then we can go on to construction and all the other phases. Yeah. And, and this is a message that I, I think is in line with what we try to espouse, which is don't fall into the low bid game. Compete on your specific individual value and what differentiates you from the competition. Because when you do start falling into the low bid game, which is the natural path that the multiple bid game, whenever you start jumping into bidding against other builders, it's just 
most likely going down that path. And it's not a good one. It's, it's set up for the guy who either doesn't know what he's doing or for the guy who is unfortunately maybe a little bit ethically dishonest to set up an artificially low budget mm. to win the bid and then change order the heck out of them during construction to win it. And I, I was on the wrong side of a few of those you know, earlier on and learned my lesson, which is why we really don't participate in the multiple bid game because we, we feel like we know our value. And I think that there are a lot of other builders that, that listen to this that are the same, but I think there are others that probably still need to hear this message. And what you're, what you're proposing with the pre-con agreement ties into this broader message that we're trying to send. Yeah, I mean, a contractor is a professional, just like a lawyer, a doctor, a CPA, um, anybody run, running any other business. But people just have the wrong perception of what a contractor is. And you look at successful builders, builders that are actually making very good profits, have um, a stream of work come in, have a great reputation. They just don't give work away for free. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't do things to generate that work. Like I was saying, that's that's marketing. That's branding. That's you know interviewing. Like I said, I'll interview with many people, but why would I bid? work. Now, this doesn't necessarily apply to the commercial world because that's a whole different ballgame. But even when I was doing commercial work, you know, usually there's banks and there's there's developers and there's there's big money behind those things. I'm going to go to those people and say, what do I got to do to be the only contractor? How can I separate myself? I know I got to bid for this work, uh, but what's going to make you happy? What's going to make my proposal or my bid different from everybody else's? What makes your job easier? And a lot of times you would win commercial work where you were the guy that said, hey, by the way, here are all the gaps in these plans. So we're just going to identify them. And that's a differentiator is saying, I'm not going to give you all the numbers. I can't do all the work because we don't have all the information. But based on our professional experience, this is what you plan for. So when everybody else is bidding that low bid number, 500,000, 600,000, and ours comes in at you know, 550, 575 with another $300,000 in contingency. And it's outlined to saying, okay, this is what you're actually going to spend. Then you separate yourself, you differentiate yourself. Now they may not go with you, but everybody knows that you're probably the best builder. And like I said, if they go with the cheapest guy, they're going to spend that money plus some, or that eventually that contractor is going to be out of business because they're not making any money. I want to get into a few of the specifics here because this is something I'm, I'm really interested to get your thoughts on. So what are a few of the specifics that need to be included or even excluded from a good pre-construction agreement? Well, it, in general, it just, it really depends on what the project is. So I try to define a pre, my pre-construction agreement is saying, this is what we're going to give you. We're going to walk through this pre-construction in three phases. We're going to do conceptual, phase, we're going to do a preliminary phase, and we're going to do a final phase. And it all depends on where you're starting out at. So if you're starting out with a set of architectural plans, you've got to take a look at those. One of the first things I always do, especially for residential architectural plans, is I just flip right to the finish schedule. And I look for anything that says TBD. Anything is TBD to be determined on the finish schedule. I say, okay, I don't have to worry about bidding the finishes right now because they haven't made those selections. Then I'll, I'll turn to the electrical plan. And I'll look and see if they just have permit only, right? Like just minimum number of lights and switches. And then I'll look at the fixture plan and there'll be some blanks on the uh, fixture 
uh, schedule there. Then I'll look at the finished schedule as far as paint colors and wood trim. And there, every time that I have a blank in there, I'm just going to note that and say, okay, here's what we can bid, right? And so that's what I'm going to do in the conceptual phase is take a look and say, okay, here are the plans and here are all the blanks in them. Now, sometimes you have really good plans uh, that come from an architect. So you might consider that you're starting in the preliminary phase. You can skip over the conceptual because the architects already provided that. But in general, I lay out a three-step process that say, we're going to go, we're going to work through conceptual, which is at the end of that part of the phase, you're going to have an overall budget range. And we're going to have our options narrowed down to one or two. Then in the preliminary phase, we're going to make some more decisions. Our budget range gets a little bit smaller, but there are no more options meaning we're not deciding uh, if we want, you know, this wall over here or we want to move the garage to the other side of the house. That's all conceptual at that, you know, and if you're still doing that, then you're not ready for preliminary. Preliminary, we're starting to make decisions. And then if we're really good at the preliminary phase, then there's really no difference between preliminary and final. So I'll walk through the final and we all decisions are made. You have a quote for the work and everything is already picked out. Now, some people are out there listening going, that, that's impossible. You can't, you can't do design work. Well, then that's fine. I'm going to make sure that I write my construction contract and say, I'm only going to bid or I'm only going to price out what we do know. So by the time that we start digging foundations, uh, I want to have the kitchen cabinets picked out. If you don't have that, then we're going to stop this phase of the construction. And this is how we stop that part because we need these decisions before, you know, before we get to that a certain point. So again, you're the professional. You don't get to go to into the doctor's office laying there on the table and just say, hey, you know, I know I need my appendix out. But, you know, since you're here, why you got your tools out? Um, why don't you go ahead and give me a nose job, too? Right. We can't. Do, you're the professional. You're the contractor. You've got to put this into your contract and it's set up with your pre-con. So that's kind of what I make sure is included in my pre-construction agreement is the steps conceptual, preliminary, and final. And then what I'm going to produce out of that, any, I'm going to fill in any gaps. Uh, maybe the architect has to do some additional drawings in order for me to price that out. Great. But they're going to get a scope of work, a very detailed scope of work. They're going to get a price and then, then they're going to get an overall schedule. So that's basically what I'm going to provide in a pre-con. And when we're done with that, it's going to lead into the construction contract. And I, I think that the construction contract, I always call that, that's the final piece of the sales process is your construction contract has got to lay out everything, how you're going to do the job, everything. And um, so those are the things that I'm kind of laying out in a pre-con. The three steps are conceptual, preliminary, and final. And make sure that we have a detailed scope of work. We've got a price for that scope of work. And then we've got a rough schedule for that scope of work. And it's all going to lead up into my construction contract, ready to execute. Yeah. That's how we do ours as well. We've got ours broken into phases with a specific payment and deliverables for each of those phases. So it sounds like sounds like that's similar to you. Yeah. And everything I'm not, especially if I'm asked to quote it, I am not going to quote anything that I don't know. And that, that's what I'll tell architects too. They say, oh, just give us a price for this. I'm not at liberty to give you a price for anything that's not on the drawings or not written down somewhere. Yeah. Right. Now, I can come up with that information, but if I come up with it, but the owner has to agree to it and then I can price it or whatever. But so many times I see contractors make assumptions when they should just go back to the the architect and just say, well, we don't have enough information or that detail is wrong. We can't build it that way. So 
we excluded it. And that gets back to the original, like what's included, what you exclude everything that you don't know. Right. And if you don't know it and you can't figure out a way to document it and show what you can price, because there are builders out there that are going to take the stuff that they don't know and they're going to be able to offer solutions and know how much those things cost. And they're going to be able to provide that comprehensive price. So I'm not saying that you don't ever price anything that you don't know. You just always have to put a price to the the solutions that you're proposing and then get the architect or the owner to sign off on that. Yeah. You just reminded me of something I want to share because it's happened recently. We've got some potential clients that are fantastic people and we're going to, I think, end up doing this project with them and I'm, I'm excited about it. But uh, even with good clients, one conversation that's come up, it's been an ongoing process for over a year. And they were asking, well, hey, what's an estimate for your price per square foot when we first, those, those original conversations? <laughs> yeah. And I give it, I am not entirely comfortable giving it. And yeah. I actually tell people that I say, listen, I'm, I can give you very broad ballpark estimates based on other projects, but I understand it can change wildly based on, on your particular project or site conditions or whatever. And then also based on the time that elapses between now and the time that you actually go bid it in half a year or a year after you guys get progress on the project, on the drawings. And people get that at the time. So a year ago, I gave these clients, potential clients, a range. And I like ranges and I like disclaiming the hell out of it with yeah. what I just explained. So even with both of that, here's here's what's happened, the conversation. It is them taking the lower end of that range oh, yeah. and bringing that up. So I want to mention that to everybody because people have probably had a similar experience. People are always going to take the lower end of your range. Yeah. So be very careful yeah. with what that lower end is. And then also, even when you disclaim the hell out of it to people, like this can change or whatever, it's still going to be a position you're going to have to probably defend later on. And again, these are great clients and it's been fine, but we're right at the upper end, just slightly over the upper end of that range that I gave them a year ago. And that's more than explained by the uh, price inflation that we've had in our local market over this time. Um, but it took a conversation with the reference point, the anchor point being the lower end of yeah, the, you yeah. It, yeah, you said it right there, the anchor point. So, I mean, we, your first gut instinct, you know, they describe a problem. And I don't, I don't care if it's a small project or it's a big project. Whatever people are calling you for, you, you need to know what your ranges need to be. But I'm telling you, if someone calls up and they want a $1.5 million house just based on the description that you give them, you better say it's $1.7 to $2 million. You got to anchor that price high because, like you said, they're only going to hear that bottom number. So if you're thinking it's going to be 1.5, you better say 1.7 to 2 million so that you've got something to come back on so that when you do run out the numbers and you are the professional and you are correct and it comes in at 1.68, then you're a hero. If you said your gut at 1.5 to 1.8, they heard 1.5 and you came in at 1.68, they're going to be like, you said you're 30,000, you know, you're 18,000 or 200,000, whatever it is over. So yep. that's why as contractors, you know, you have got to learn how to sell. And I know how that runs across so many contractors out there because they think I don't want to be one of these sleazy salespeople. Right. And that's not what I'm talking about. But you have to understand 
how the human brain works when we make buying decisions and we all do it. And I would challenge contractors that say, well, I don't want to sell like that. I just, you know, I want to be honest with people. And you're talking about the psychology of, of buying and selling and price anchoring. And I think that's dishonest. Here's what, here's what I think is so sad. If you don't learn how to sell your product or your service to someone, if you truly believe in what you're doing and you truly believe that you're the best builder and that people should trust you to build their house because you are going to take care of them and provide them a superior product. You have got an obligation to sell them on you. And if you're just hoping that numbers and smiles and pats on the back and just being honest, I'm not saying be dishonest, but I'm saying you've got to learn these sales techniques so that you get the opportunity to provide this wonderful service that you do for people. That's the best way that you can take care of them is to get them to buy from you. If they buy from the other guy that doesn't price anchor and allows bad things to happen, you're not taking care of those people. So you have an obligation to learn how to sell. And one of those ways is you've got to anchor your prices. It, it reminds me when you were just saying that, I already knew where you were going when, when, uh, when you said they always pick the bottom end of the range. Uh-huh. Here's something that I learned in some, <laughs> doing some research on this. Uh, on price anchoring specifically, there was a um, like a marketing adage that says, do you know the easiest way to sell a $2,000 watch? You put it right next to a $10,000 watch. <laughs> so true. Right? And you start with a $10,000 watch. Here's all the benefits of the $10,000 watch. That's exactly what we want, blah, blah, blah. Oh, but I've got this other thing over here. Oh, $2,000 is a great deal and it has many of the same benefits. Let's just buy that. Yeah, that's actually... Uh one of the principal lessons in one of my favorite books called persuasion, which I highly recommend to yeah. all builders by Robert. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. I think it's Cialdini, but yeah, good book. And they've got some fantastic lessons in that, that what you're describing right there being, being one. Yeah. And, and understand that people, they're going to use the budget number because they're scared and that's okay. But you just know that the budget, sure. Everybody has a budget, but, People want what they want. Yeah. They will find the money to do it. So here's a great piece of uh, consulting advice. Here's a question that you can start asking your customers. If you're, if it makes you nervous to ask the budget question, deal with that and giving ranges and all that kind of stuff. What you need to do is establish what the budget is. You got to get to that. There's no reason to do a bunch of work, free work for somebody if you haven't had a serious discussion about the budget. But here's a question that you can ask them to really show empathy to to create empathy with your customers and to show them that you're the next level of type of builder is you say okay now here's the budget we've talked about it whatever it is let's say it's 1.5 million dollars then you're going to ask them you say okay what i need to know now this may be a personal question but it's very important for us before we go any further is we've got a budget established at about 1.5 million but i need to ask you what is the number at which your lifestyle becomes affected and when you ask that question, you just let it sit. Just let it be silent. Let them think about what you're asking. Because if $1.5 million is truly their budget, above that number, and this is what you're going to explain to them, as they might not answer that question, say above $1.5 million, if that adversely affects your lifestyle, then we need to plan for a $1.3 million project so that we can leave you room because things will change. We won't change things. We're not at liberty to change things. We're going to build what we quote. We're going to build what the architect says. We're going to do the things. But you are going to change your mind. 
there's things under the ground and there's delays that are going to happen because things that fall from the sky like rain and snow and hurricanes and all of this kind of stuff that we can't control. So the costs for this thing are going to go up. But because we're professionals, once this train starts rolling, if 1.5 is the end of the track, we want to be able to start slowing that train down at 1.3 so that we can coast to the finish line and your lifestyle is not affected. You ask a question like that, sincerely caring for the customer, you're going to find out they're going to say 1.5 is our budget, but we could probably do 2 million. At 2 million, that's where the lifestyle really becomes effective. Now you've got something that you can work with. Everything is on the table and you've shown that you just want to take care of them. And I like to use that train analogy to say, hey, we're going to blow right through this $1.5 million budget based on the drawings that you have. And we can't slow it down once we get started. And no one wants to be in that situation where the builder just can't get paid and the project's not done because the owner ran out of money. Yeah. Well, and I read a article, it was a great article on some local builders here in Austin, Reesher Martin, and they had a quote that I can't remember, but to paraphrase it, basically they were saying, you know, they do exactly what you're saying. They estimate high and they almost always come in under and are giving money back, writing a check to the client at the end of the project because their philosophy, which I completely agree with, is that most lawsuits are typically over money and they're not about you giving somebody a check back. They're about <laughs> you asking a check that people feel like they don't owe you. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think that was, um, I share that exact same philosophy. Yeah. All right. Well, to wrap this up, I got a few notes. I just, I want to hit on going back to one of our earlier, earlier questions. This is a, this is a little personal advice I have for the audience and you're welcome to join in on, uh, whether you agree with this or have anything to add or subtract, but on a few specific bullet points in the pre-con agreements that I found are helpful, in addition to the phases and payments and deliverables we talked about. One is, I'm going to disclaim, say, talk to your attorney about this rather than taking my advice, but some section that talks about what happens if things go wrong. Just in, you know, every contract, every good agreement needs that to make sure that there is some sort of path forward or mediation or whatever your attorney suggests, that if things do go wrong, you've got some some path forward, clear path forward through that pre-con agreement. Um, that would be one. The other is we had a pre-con agreement a long time ago with somebody that they ended up being just complete assholes during that we learned about during that pre-construction. We ended up deciding not to move forward with the project. I think that there should also be a section that where there's kind of a, a mutual non-requirement to enter into a future contract. You know, in other words, a future construction contract will be a separate agreement entirely yes. jointly opted into by both parties if they want. And I think that should be spelled out because if it's not, it can be perhaps incorrectly inferred that one or both parties would be obligated to do so. And then the last point is um, I'm a little gray on this. I haven't, I haven't really settled on an exact opinion, but I, I think there's some value in probably having a confidentiality clause where you say that that they must keep it confidential rather than sharing it with other builders or contractors. They could probably come back and say, well, I'm paying you all this money. We should be able to share it, perhaps a counterpoint. But I think it's probably better to have that confidentiality and whether they're going to honor that or not is, you know, 
something else, but I think it just doesn't hurt to have it in there. Anyway, that's, those are my, those are a few points I just wanted to make. You have anything else? No, I think it's very important that first thing that you said, I kind of lump number one and number two together. Like you got to have a clause in there. And again, it's good to talk to your attorney and make sure that it's spelled out the right way for your state, your jurisdiction. But you want a clause in there that you can fire each other. Like if you breach the terms of this contract, here's what we're going to do to get out of this contract. If we breach it, here's what you need to do to get out of it. Those things need to be, you know, written notices, certain days, blah, 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 all that legalese, certified mail. You need to have that in there in any kind of agreement, right? How do we get, but I like what you're saying is, especially when you present the pre-construction agreement to the owners, when you say, oh, by the way, if, you know, we were to ever do anything to be in breach, here's how you fire us. And you let them, you know, like, let them feel good. We're in control of this. We can fire our contractor. Yes, you absolutely can. And we want you to fire us if, you know, we're in breach of contract. That protects you. Pause. Now, here's the clause where we get to fire you, (laughs) meaning for any reason, if we just don't like you, of course, I'm not going to say it like this, but here's the steps that we're going to go through uh, to fire you. And here's it. It's all laid out. And then the other thing that that I always make sure that's in those pre-con agreements, this is not a construction services contract. You are not hiring us to do construction services. We're providing you with a professional service. Now, I would say on that last point, the confidentiality agreement, I would agree, like, if you're paying me some money, then I'm providing you with something and it's yours to do with it what you want. Now, there could be some legal stuff there where you're saying, hey, if we've done any plans, if we've done any design work and you take those plans and alter them or whatever, have somebody else build it, we're not responsible for any of that. There's certainly some language that you need to put in there. But I always said this is why you're buying the pre-construction agreement uh, or services from us is because if you decide that we're not the builder for you or if we decide you're not the client for us, then the money that you have paid, well, we're going to turn over a product to you, plans, specs, materials, a schedule. Now, I'm not going to show them proprietary information by any stretch of the imagination. The way that I price things out will be in phases. There will be in big bulks. I'll give them a detailed scope of work, but no way. You're not seeing my margin, my markup. You're not seeing any of that kind of stuff. And when I delivered a pre-construction services, the, the, the product, I would always tell the owner, okay, here's all of the detail. And if you decide not to hire us, then here's another version of that without any numbers. Now, I can't control if you give all of the detailed information to another contractor, but here's what another contractor is going to do. He's not going to do his homework. He's going to look at the number and he's just going to be lower than that. So I provide them with the scope of work without any numbers, without any takeoffs, without any detailed information and say, this is what you need to give to 10 other contractors and see what comes back. Use ours kind of as an answer sheet, knowing that they could give the numbers out and they might do that. But sometimes I've found that if you just tell people what to do and you paint yourself as a professional, they'll just do what you say. But if you get through a pre-construction agreement and you provide the services and they don't hire you, then something there is wrong. Either they just didn't have the budget they really don't like you or you really don't like them. It's it's going to be pretty drastic. I find that most people, unless something major happens in their life, you should be closing 80 to 90 percent of the projects that you get a pre-con on. Yeah, the way that you're structuring it and proposing it, it yeah. should be in the bag, so to say. Yeah, every now and then, you know, they're going to call up and say, hey, you know, grandma passed away and we've got to take that money to sell her estate and whatever. And we just we can't do the project. Yeah. That's horrible. I'm sorry. Okay. Here's the product. 
here's the drawing. Here's what we have to this point or whatever. Yeah. Life's going to happen. But most of the time, and the other thing about the pre-con, this is, this is what, you know, so many contractors are so resistant to do it because it, you know, you got to get people to pay you money up front before you do any work. That's a sign of trust, you know, and when people pay you to do work up front or pay you before you've done any work, it means that they trust you. If they're not willing to do that, then maybe you haven't given them a reason to trust you. Maybe they can't see the process. You're not overcoming their fears in the interview. So the reason that you're not selling it is maybe because, again, back to the whole selling thing, you may not be presenting it well, but it really makes sense because once they walk through and make all those decisions, even if they don't like you for some reason, they're going to lay it. Those owners are going to lay in bed at night thinking, well, we don't really like Jared all that much, but man, we've done a lot of work with him to get to this point. <laughs> it's another psychological thing. You know, it's, it's a sunk cost fallacy. Let's not jump ship because most people by that, they've just made so many decisions. They had no idea that it was going to be that exhausting. So you got to, you know, you got to kind of prepare them for that too. Yeah. Well, this is good stuff, Sean. I think this is the wrap for this episode. Appreciate your advice. Oh, thank you. 